Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Jeremy Hunter. Jeremy is a global authority on mindfulness and leadership, as well as the great-grandson of a sumo wrestler. He serves as the founding director of the Executive Mind Leadership Institute, as well as the associate professor of practice at the Peter F. Drucker School of Management. Jeremy's work is informed by the experience of living day to day for almost two decades now with a potentially terminal illness, and we'll be talking about that. For eight times, he's been awarded the Teacher of the Year Award by his students. And when faced with the need for life-saving surgery, more than a dozen former students came forward as organ donors. Jeremy's also part of the core faculty of the Inner MBA, which is a nine-month online immersion training program that Sounds True has created in partnership with LinkedIn and Wisdom 2.0. Each year, we take one cohort through the Inner MBA, and it starts in September. You can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Jeremy, welcome. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, good. All right. Right here at the beginning, something I don't know about you. It's interesting. We've had lots of conversations, but I don't know. How did your life path become focused on being this bridge between, this is how I see it, the deep spiritual journey and leadership and organizational transformation. How did that become your focus? Yeah, that's a great question. At the In the late 1990s, I was uh, studying at the University of Chicago with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who I think everybody knows is the founder of Flow. And we were doing a series of research projects under the umbrella of good work. And the Fetzer Institute and the Nathan Cummings Foundation gave us a grant to study, quote unquote, successful professionals who are also long-term mindfulness practitioners. So this is the late 1990s, right? Which is a completely different, I think, <clears throat> psychological world. And so even, even at that time, to have somebody publicly admit they were a meditator was, was not easy, frankly, right? 
and through the grace, good graces of Mirabai Bush and the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society, we found really remarkable people. And uh, Robert Shapiro, the former chairman of Monsanto, being one of them, and uh, you know, world famous movie producers, um, world renowned architects, as well as journalists therapists, people who were, you know, making a, a living using their mind, basically. And I would go interview them. And we would ask a question like something that would be impossible to answer. Like, what do you think your life would be like if you didn't have this practice? And, and again, this is the late 1990s. So very different world, no mobile technology, none of the craziness we live with right now. They would say something like, you know, I'm being pulled in so many directions at once that if I didn't have this practice to keep me grounded, centered, and sane, I think I'd be dead. And like a third of the people we talked to said I'd be dead. And, and I realized that um, everybody needed this kind of practice. And of course, I would have been dead too. You know, um, you mentioned I had this, I was, you know, I was 20 when I was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease. And, and I turned it into basically a spiritual adventure. And I'm sitting there listening to these people taking notes thinking, oh, yeah, you'd be dead too, Jeremy. And so um, uh, then the, at the end of the 90s, we moved from Chicago to the Drucker School in Claremont. And of course, I think people know Peter Drucker is considered to be the founding father of the discipline of management and, and truly one of the great intellects of his time, maybe of all, of all time. He's quite an amazing human being. And he had, he wrote, you know, extensively about so many things, but one of them, which caught my eye, was the notion that we have overtrained in analysis and we have undertrained in perception. We train people to think, but we don't teach them to see. And when I found that, that kind of blew my mind. Now, he was a prodigious collector of Japanese painting, Japanese inkbrush painting. And he said that Japanese art taught him how to see the world. And, and so this notion of developing perception, if you were a meditator, that would make sense. But I think if you were just a normal person, that would make no sense at all. Like, what the heck does that mean? Develop perception. And, and then the final thing was a colleague of mine Jean Littman Blumen, also a, a legend in her own right, said to me offhandedly in the hallway, it was like one of those moments that you don't see coming, but they totally change your life. And she says, you know, Jeremy, we train managers to manage everything but themselves. And then, it, and then in that moment, everything came together. I thought, wow, you have these people who are um, living fairly intense lives, saying, if I didn't have this practice, I'd be dead. You had me thinking, oh, yeah, you'd be dead, too. You have Drucker talking about developing perception to see a world that's there, not the world that you assume is there. So you can adapt to it. You know, his, he was thinking about this in terms of how do you adapt to change? How do you actually deal with the world? And then, and then my colleagues saying, oh, yeah, we don't teach managers to manage themselves. And so it all came together. And I realized, oh, everybody needs this kind of thing. And that... We, as we've talked about before, the, the balance of Western education is so biased towards thinking and cognition to the exclusion of, you know, somatic sensing or, or emotion or perception and all the other human faculties that we can develop. And I, and I think also being half Japanese really underscored something for me because 
I think anybody who's been to Japan knows Japan is fundamentally a society of perception and that, that it's a perceptual society, which, which means that attention and stability and attention is a highly prized cultural aspect, you know, even, even in, with my own team, like their quality of attention is just so much more, you know, I have a business in Japan and, um, and we meet on Zoom regularly every week and, and their quality of attention in those meetings is so incredible. I mean, it's better than mine, frankly, but people are there. Presence is valued as a, as a cultural quality. And, and I think kind of living in between these worlds and seeing how one, one society, you know, which we're kind of an attention, like the United States is a kind of attention deficit society. And then you have another society, which is almost totally the opposite. And how much attention is paid to even the most minute detail. And, and then oftentimes in the service of making that detail beautiful um, has been, a, I think, kind of an, an interesting way of going through life. But, um, but that, that's the long answer to your question of like how did all these dots connect? And, you know, and, then the, and then the challenge was how do you talk to business people who aren't, or managers, you know, we're not a school of business, we're a school of management. Um, how do you talk to decision makers and managers who, who may not be interested in a spiritual journey um, about this kind of thing in a way that they would find relevant, not just relevant in their life, but an absolute necessity? And that was the next challenge. But, but, but that's the answer to the question. I'm curious to know more about the quality of perception that Peter F. Drucker was pointing to and how, like, even right now in this moment, could I do mm. a perceptual exercise to start to connect with the quality of perception that he was pointing to? Uh, yeah, I can give you one that's actually documented on the internet and um, of somebody who came to visit him and she, he brought this topic up, like, can you see the world that's in, actually in front of you? Because most of the time we're, we're projecting that through the filters in our head that we don't, and, and then distorting what we act, what's actually happening. And he, she said, okay. And uh, he sat her in front of the, one of the ink brush paintings in his, in his office. And he said, how many colors are there? And he says, she says two, you know, black and white. And, uh, and he says, really? And she looks at it and she looks at it and she looks at it and she goes, oh, I realized, you know, there were a thousand shades of gray. And, uh, um, and that he said, living with these paintings day in and day out and, and having a relationship with them is really what honed his quality of perception. And then make the bridge to me to organizational life, to being effective as a business human once we cultivate this type of subtle perception of what's real, what's actually in front of us. Yeah, that, uh, wonderful. So that's easy. So you have a meeting with your most difficult client. What are the assumptions, emotional reactions, expectations, judgments you walk in with even before that meeting has started? And how do all of those filters distort your capacity to be present and clear in that engagement. And, and oftentimes it's so automatic and so invisible and so fast, we don't see any of those things and you're already headlong into a reaction and it's, and it's uh, distorting the outcome. Um, you know, one of my 
favorite stories about this process. I was working with a group of financial advisors and they were, they were like the top fin financial advisors in the country. And like one of their rewards was to, <laughs> to spend time with me. And, and um, what a dubious, what a dubious reward. But anyway, I asked them to uh, think about their most difficult client. And a fellow in the back of the room, his name was George, like throws up his hands and says, oh God, Joan. And Joan was his most difficult client. And, and I said, okay, what's the story in your head about Joan? And he says, oh, that's easy. Joan wakes up to ruin my day. And, and every time they had a phone conversation, it would end with, with frustration on both sides. And I said, okay, so like your homework is to, is to see if you can transform this relationship by letting go of the, of the stuff you're bringing to it. And he was, because he was, you know, quite good at his job. And I think he wanted to be better. Uh, we, we met three months later and he said, you know, I said, so what happened? And, and he said, well, I didn't wait for Joan to call me. I got back to the office on Monday and I called her and the phone is ringing. Someone picks up the phone and I hear a frail old lady's voice say hello. And he said, in that moment, I, I saw how my assumption that here's a woman who wakes up to ruin my day was completely um, wrong. And, and then it occurred to him that her husband was the client, his client. He died. He was the one who managed all the money. She didn't have any kind of financial acumen whatsoever. And so whenever she's calling him, she's calling him from a place of real anxiety about her future. And he said this, and he said, I took personally this anxiety she's projecting on me. And I realized this is someone's grandma who's just worried about her future. And like, what a jerk am I to have all these reactions around her and, and worse than that, allow them to affect the outcome. And, and like once the moment he heard the frailty in her voice, he said, my, my heart broke open to her. And, and I talked to her as if she was my grandmother. And, and it completely changed their relationship. And so, you know, if we talk about something, you know, more management-like, like productivity, you know, we tend to think of productivity as a, as, a, as a linear phenomenon. I'll be more productive if I just work harder. But if you think about the productivity in that relationship, in that conversation, it, the productivity gain, if we want to talk about it that way, was instantaneous simply because he changed his mind, right? And so they didn't have to work on the relationship. They didn't have to talk, keep talking and, uh, uh, um, you know, hash things out. He simply changed his mind and the world changed and their relationship changed. And so we don't think about these things as um, being impactful on something like productivity, but but it's there, it's clear, right? And it, um, and I think that is such a huge, gigantic untapped potential we all have to transform how we work simply at some level by changing the mind we bring to it. And nobody's ever taught us how to do that. And so what I try to do is help people see how it is they're constructing their experience. How are they constructing their reality? What are the stories they bring to something? What are the unhealed traumas that they're, that they're projecting on a situation that, that distort it and, and distort the outcome? Um, you know, how do their emotional reactions 
damage a relationship. And, and then you always tie that back to the outcome. What's the result? Is that result the one you wanted or, or did it go in a place you didn't want it to go? And by making it tangible like that, then you, you take these topics, which can so all too easily be filed away in the, in the woo-woo box to something that is incredibly practical and, and I think an absolute necessity for this ever uh, more challenging and interesting world we live in. Like, how do you transform your mind and how do you do it in real time? Um, I don't know, does that answer your question? It does, and you're also pointing, I think, very interestingly to answering something that you brought up, which is the challenge that you found yourself in at the Peter F. Drucker School of how do I bring these deep inner transformational tools and insights to business people? And what you just said was connecting it to the results that people want. And I wonder if you can say a bit more about that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a necessity because executives are action people right and that they're that's and that they they're they're driven to achieve things and i think where oftentimes the quote unquote mindfulness at work phenomena fails is by not connecting it to a result right you're we're going to teach you how to meditate and then we're going to you'll you'll lower your blood pressure or maybe you see um you know some of your Kind of mental constructions and and learn how to manage them better, but but the rigorous connection to result, I think, is what makes it tangible for people who aren't naturally predisposed to doing this kind of thing. And and frankly, to me, it's more interesting. So a lot of a lot of the practices I, you know, we I work with are embedded in daily life. So you know, I don't start with meditation and for the reason that for most people, they don't like it. It's usually unpleasant in the beginning and there's a huge barrier to entry. But if you can start with their daily life, even just start with their children for that matter and show that, okay, by doing these things, you can change the outcome in these situations, then that builds huge motivation to keep doing more of this. And I, I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is that I had to learn how to be generous to people who um, whose lives were really different than my own and to, and to be open, to, totally open-hearted to the va to the variety of human experience that was in the classroom. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe just a more direct and honest way to say it is that I had to learn how to love unconditionally, quite frankly. And, and by, by, I think, approaching the work from that way of being able to accept whatever the student was bringing, um, I think helped a lot. Jeremy, you have a, a podcast called Untaught Essentials. And for our conversation, I want to dig in a bit to Untaught Essentials for Business Humans. <laughs> and one of them you already pointed to which is somatic intelligence. This is mm -hmm. not something that's in most MBA training programs. It is a focus of the inner MBA. And I also have heard you say that in your own life, early in your life, 
you would have said that you lived in a long distance relationship with your body. So I'm curious how you have developed more and more somatic intelligence and how you introduce this to business humans. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I was really kind of a disaster in that department of um, being highly achievement oriented and in that achievement orientation being totally disconnected from my body to the point where it was killing me, quite frankly, right? And learning how to sense into what was I actually feeling, learning how even just to know what did tired feel like, because I didn't know what tired felt like until I was like collapsing in bed um, from some illness, you know? So I think simply learning how to direct attention to what is happening in your body is the start. And I studied all kinds of things like um, focusing, which was developed by Eugene Jenlin at the University of Chicago. It's, it's not the best name, quite frankly, but you know, it's having a dialogue with the felt sense of your body, which he found you know, was what actually made therapy effective, was that you know, he found that it wasn't talking about the story to the therapist. It was that the patients who got better um, had a dialogue with their own body and that the, and that once, and that that dialogue would, would, um, resolve whatever conflict they were holding. And, and I think he, he started to formalize that process. So focusing was a huge, the practice of focusing, I think was a huge thing for me. And, and then the, the body aspects of, of a mindfulness meditation that I learned through Shinzen Young, who was my first great teacher. Um, and Wiser Cornell, I think, is the person who I, I learned focusing from. And then, you know, and then from there on, Marcella Widrig, who I just interviewed for my podcast, is uh, just a fantastic guide into somatic intelligence. And to the point where, I mean, this might be a little too esoteric, but, you know, living with illness for an extended period of time with an autoimmune disease, which, which causes... I mean, for me, it was like, okay, when is my body going to betray me, basically, is the, is the kind of constant thought one holds. And learn how to tr learning how to trust the body, but also sense into it um, was really, I think, really essential. But then, you know, working with the body for so long, it starts to make me realize the body's not simply a mechanical thing there to carry around your brain. And... I'd be curious to know actually how you think about this because, you know, I really start to see the body's kind of a collection of energy, which, you know, that's like the most woo-woo Southern California sentence ever. <laughs> if you aren't, if you aren't predisposed to this kind of thing, but you know, the body is a, at some level, a, a kind of energetic field that you you have a relationship with and and of course if you don't know what the heck i'm talking about and that sounds so totally weird you know i'm i'm as a native midwesterner i i'm totally with you right but in 30 years of doing this i mean that's kind of the conclusion i've come to is that it's it's not just a mechanical object which is i think what we're it's kind of the default mainstream view of what the body is but but it's a field of information that you can have a conversation with at some point. 
I'm with you, Jeremy. And, you know, I won't go into detail, but briefly, the worst business deal I ever made after I met the people, I did feel like I was going to vomit mm. for about an hour. And I went ahead anyway, even though I had that. This was, you know, 25 years ago and learned, oh, my body is communicating to me in it's intuition all the time. Now, here's my question to you, though. You work with some pretty conventional uh, corporations, and you're going in and you're teaching people the value and the importance of connecting with this field of intelligent energy as a place to receive our intuition, guidance, knowing. How do you do it? How do you talk about it in those situations? I, I find that... Uh... Okay, that's a great question. Sometimes just simply asking, well, what's your body think about this? Or what's your, when you ask the question, what does your body feel about it? And, and that pe some people can go there. And that, and that I find that the more disconnected you are from that flow of information, the, the, the more vulnerable you are to making emotionally driven decisions without, um, you know, to be, to be more emotionally volatile, I would say is one the more disconnected you are from that. The other is that the more disconnected you are from your body, that you tend to make decisions that kind of intellectually sound good, but, and on paper, they might sound good. But, but as you say, as you said, like there's a whole other field of information that's saying, no, 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 don't do this. Um, that, uh, that you don't, you know, that, that, so that it distorts the action. So I think at some level, everybody gets it and they want, to know it's okay to listen to what their gut says. And I think really super successful business people actually do this quite well. Um, and, and to know that at some level, your body is a more honest arbiter of reality, I think, than your, than your brain, given you that you've healed your trauma, you know, then that, that can be a distorting factor. But I think that helping people tap into that sense. So, okay, let me back up. I, one of the things that I have found over and over and over again is that the groundedness of the leader becomes the groundedness of the group and, and vice versa that, or, 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 and the opposite, I would say that when a leader is ungrounded or that they are emotionally volatile or that they are, uh, really not don't have a, a sense of um inner calm that 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 chaos or that um distortion becomes the group's distortion i have seen it over and over and over again and when the and when the the leader is grounded the the group becomes calmer they feel safe and when the leader is volatile no one feels safe and then how that and the the uh, the uh, follow along effects on the relationships they have with one another, their capacity to communicate clearly and honestly, to down to the result every we eventually get is either positively or negatively impacted by that. It's it just seems like such an obvious thing. And I'll bet there are a handful, maybe three business schools in the world that tell you that teach you how to be grounded as a human being. And, um, and yet it's the thing that drives everything else. And I've seen it over and over and over again. And why that isn't 
plainly obvious to everybody. It's a huge mystery to me. How do you help business leaders become grounded? What do you teach them? Question number one, are your feet and your head in the same room? And oftentimes they are not. So then when we establish, look, your feet and your head need to be in the same room. And then, you know, it all works with what I fundamentally, the core of my practice starts with your nervous system. You have to learn how to manage. Managing yourself first means managing your nervous system. And can you bring your nervous system back into a state of groundedness? And, and that when you do that, people feel it right away. You feel it right away. And like, oh, okay, I kind of like this. And then people, other people around you will notice that. Um, I think that's the starting place. And then from there, it, it builds. And you know, I'd say the core of my teaching and coaching is, is really about helping people develop that capacity. And, and when they do, you know, really, truly amazing things happen. One of the modules you teach as part of the inner MBA has to do with learning how to manage your nervous system. And mm. I wonder here if you could give people an introduction to how you frame the conversation, because it's so clever, Jeremy, the way you work with these three different color zones. So mm. tell us a little bit about that, the framework you've developed to bring the nervous system to business people. Sure. Um human beings respond to challenge or threat in one of three ways, right? We either go into uh, protection or threat, uh, protection or, or defense, we shut down or we engage. And so I found an easy shorthand for that is you go into the red zone, right? I mean, the protection or defense or escape. The black zone, I shut down or freeze. Or the green zone where, where I can engage or I can adapt or I can... Um, inquire, which is where ideally we want to be. We're not going to be there all the time, but I find the red zone, green zone, black zone shorthand to be incredibly useful because it's not therapeutic language. People identify with it right away. We're not talking about stress. Interestingly, I found that successful people do not want to talk about stress or managing stress. And, but if we can talk about how do I help me and my team be in their green zone more, that kind of framing changes the game. And they can start to see like where in your organization is a chronic red zone? Or is that because the job is designed to put people in the red zone over and over again? Or is there a leadership deficiency that's causing the team to be in a red zone? And let me step back. Like I've moved a long time ago, I moved away from the whole language about managing stress. Tell me about that. Cause when you said, you know, successful people don't want to talk about that. I was like, Oh, I didn't know that. No successful executive will ever admit to being stressed because they don't want to be seen as the weak link in the chain. And so by talking about red zone green, and then, so, and then also the frame, right? Like, and I think we all know, right. The frame you put on a situation uh, affects affects the outcome. So if you talk about managing stress, then basically you put a frame on it of like, how do I get from negative 10 to negative one? And uh, what was it Freud said the best that psychotherapy can do is return a person to a more normal level of misery or so, something like that, you know? So like the stress management conversation is about getting to a more tolerable level of misery. 
where I find red zone, green zone, black zone is actually more useful is like, how do I be in the green zone more rather than how do I be in the red zone less? And then if I am in the green zone more and how do I make my green zone wider, um, you know, so that I don't even have defensive or protective reactions, um, then, then life changes. Then you're moving from minus 10 to positive 25. And, and that's something I think we have also not done a very good job as, as, a, as a society. But what I found over again, over and over and over again, is that when a leader prioritizes making, you know, putting themselves in their green zone, which means a place of vitality and resilience and aliveness, um, things change in the most amazing, fascinating ways. So they become more alive, right? And as they, as they become more alive, as, as we talked about earlier, right? The people around them become more alive. And because they're setting the emotional and kind of consciousness tone of, of their group. And so, and as that happens, you know, we, as we've talked about before, you know, one, one, of my, one of my students who is just one of my personal heroes for what she's done with her life, she says, you know, I see myself as a leader, I see myself as an island of calm and connection, and I am trying to make this island bigger, you know, starting with my own team and then our, and then our stakeholders and their stakeholders, and I'm trying to grow this and her results. Like what happens when everybody's in their green zone is that you have you have amazing off the charts levels of collaboration, right? A willingness to take risks and trust one another, and 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 that dynamic creates outcomes that at the beginning are completely unforeseeable, um, which in the case of my student is is absolutely true. So. And you get to feel better, right? I mean, it's like, okay, the ulcer goes away, you know, the depression goes away, you're living in vitality. And so thinking about how do I make my green zone bigger, prioritizing that as the core strategic aim of your, of your work or of your life, I get better sleep, I eat better, my energy is better, um, changes everything. And it's, and it's totally you know, the opposite of the dominant narrative we have around working, which is really at some level um, destructive. Not at some level, it is destructive. I'll just say it that plainly, right? Um, you know, why do I need to stress myself out into extreme states of catatonia in order to be successful at work? And that's the model we have. And I think that's the model that um, people are rebelling against post-pandemic. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, you're describing this, you know, large green zone at work, many people in the green zone working together. I'm imagining listeners going, what is Jeremy talking about? What businesses are like this? What I keep hearing about are all the mental health challenges in the workplace, the large number of people who are depressed and uh, supremely anxious and, you know, what does it actually take more than one single green zone leader to create a large group of people working in that zone? What really, Jeremy, are you seeing yeah. this happen? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, to just make it more concrete, my, 
my student is named Heather Dyer. She's the head of a water district in Southern California. So it's a government agency. So they aren't, you know, I don't know, but they're generally tended to be known as nimble organizations. She, uh, you know, after her own personal transformation, she became CEO of this organization and decided to transform the culture. And she she shifted the structure basically she said you know i i made it i made the culture around personal and professional development and and growth and which meant that i trusted my people that if you needed to take a day off you could get you could take a day off but you know all we cared about was did you get the work done and that we uh put structures in place that gave them more autonomy around their, around their work. And, and then we did a lot of group development exercises. You know, this is her talking uh, about how do we improve the quality of relationships we have with one another and how do we deal with conflict better? You know, all the things about being human together. And uh, you know, she helped people get degrees and, and to grow and that growth she's also a biologist. So she sees the world through the lens of biology which I think is a really powerful asset. You know, like how do life is interconnected, you know, her own words. I realize, you know, as a biologist, I know that life is interconnected and yet my leadership didn't reflect that. And now it does. Right. And so we think about what are the needs that the people have? How do we, how do we help them meet those needs? And that when they know I care about what their needs are and, and they feel safe, then, then, then the collaborative superpower turns on and like what you can look at her LinkedIn feed, like her results are absolutely amazing. She and her team have developed completely new ways of financing 21st century water infrastructure. I mean, these like fundamental things for the health of society at the leading edge of climate change that she is looking at um, and that she is making progress on. And so it sounds pie in the sky, but Gee whiz, when you take care of people, help them feel safe, empower them to take action and use their talent and intelligence, amazing things can happen. And I think that we have somehow totally forgotten as a, as a society. And, you know, the, the management, the dominant management models are, are um, profoundly destructive. Right? Like, you know, the whole GE thing of we're going to take away the 10 to 10% of the non-performing team members every year, you know, that just creates profound fear and anxiety. And I think history has borne out that that's not a sustainable model. So we need to figure out a different model. And there are different models. And it starts with the human nervous system. And that putting people in chronic states of stress and fear is not a way to create sustained performance. Now you can point to like, okay, well, what about this place, this place, and this place, which show up in the news regularly for not being pleasant places to work, and yet their stock market valuations are are off the charts? Is that like, okay, um, that's great, and how sustainable is that? You know, how sustainable are people flourishing and thriving in those environments? And my guess is probably not. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. I don't say this very often on Insights at the Edge. In fact, I think I've never said it before, but I'm going to say it right now. You ready? Amen <laughs> to what you just said. Okay, here's something I really want to talk to you about, Jeremy, which is 
how we each work with our own fear. Mm. And I'm bringing this up because uh, I'll just say it, I've been pretty anxious the majority mm. of my life. And I think that even though I've operated in what people might think often looks like the green zone, underneath there's been this sort of like subtle kind of anxious feeling that, ha you know, I've always been like, stay at it, Tammy, be vigilant, look everywhere. You're a little paranoid. That might be a good thing. You're running an organization. <laughs> you have a lot of people who you're responsible to get back at it. This kind of, you know, sort of base level anxiety kind of running the show. And I've really been looking at the transformation of that anxiety and how it can free up to use uh, the language that I often hear you use quoting Joseph Campbell about how vital people vitalize, how mm -hmm. the more I resolve this anxiety, the more vitality, actually really genuine, joyous vitality is on tap. So help me and all of the other anxious business people that are listening with this challenge. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm right there with you. I, I think that um, for any number of reasons, one one of living with autoimmune disease for two decades doesn't doesn't um, make it an easy road to walk down, quite frankly. Um, but I think this is you put your finger on where I think the huge leverage point is, which is the transformation of fear. And for any number of reasons, one is uh, I'm, I'm really curious to know, you know, and this goes back to the vitality part, what happens in life when you are not experiencing it through the lens of potential threat constantly? And, and that when I, I just speaking from my own life, right, that, and, and I'll, I'll say, I'll be quite frank, you know, there were times where I really have seriously thought, not recently, but there were times, especially early on in that experience where I thought, you know, why, why should I bother living, you know, and where's a nice tall bridge I can find or something like that, you know, uh, or there are times of just profound uh, darkness and, and hopelessness. And, and so, so I don't come at this from any kind of like, Pollyannish sort of way, you know, I like grinding misery. I, I think I have in some small way, at least known in my own life as well. So the transformation of fear, I think is the place where the action is actually. And that we have lived with the basic, same basic neural infrastructure for tens of thousands of years. And what is it? How do we how do we begin to change that? I, I think is what I've kind of explored in the last 15 years or so of my life. So um, learning how, well, first of all, not to run from step number one is not acknowledge, okay, that you are actually experiencing this. Then step number two is to not see it as an enemy. And that, you know, all of those anxious fear-oriented thoughts are really there at some level to protect you, and it can go off the rails, right? So 
when you learn how to have a relationship with fear in a way that isn't trying to banish it from your experience, I think that what I've, what I've experienced is that um, it changes and it, it turns into how do I, how do I talk about this without sounding totally nuts, but feel free to say it plain. <laughs> like just so, okay. Learn how, uh, how does this show up in your body? Right. And then let's say it's a sensation in your body. Let's talk, let's just pretend it's a clenching, sure. a clenching in your chest or something like that. Then that clenching in your chest becomes the object to work with. And, and by approaching that object in a way that doesn't see it as an enemy. In fact, I oftentimes encourage people to like hold that sensation as if it were a puppy dog or a small child you like or something, then, and, and that you hold that with that quality, more often than not, it will begin to break up and shift. And, and as it breaks up and shifts, something opens up inside. And what opens up is usually more space and, or more, um, more peace or even just happiness, you know, you, I think you become more available to experience joy and happiness in your life. Um, now we, we have also talked about the disease, which I made up right many years ago called FDS, uh, frivolity deficiency syndrome, right? It's a serious disease. And, and I will say that I had a pretty bad case of it. Um, you know, the, the hallmark is that you can, you can find the downside of any situation <laughs> really well. And, and I think that as you, with what I call kind of gentle relentlessness, step into these places of, of fear-based contraction, hold them with a quality of care and allow them to untie that, that over time, things shift inside, you know, you don't see the lens, you don't see the world through this Eeyore ish sort of lens. And that, um, and that your perception changes going back to Drucker, your perception of the world changes and that you see, I, I've, I now come to think about it as more, you become more possibility oriented. And, um, or, or you become, yeah, more oriented around, um, Uh, what's the word I want? Uh, uh, opportunity. That's actually, that's what I want to say. You become more opportunity oriented. You see where the opportunities are as opposed to where the threats are. And, and that's certainly true for, for, for me. Like, uh, I mean, I, I think people, if you would have met me like 25 years ago, probably wouldn't have liked me. I was very negative and cynical and angry. And, and I don't think I'm that way anymore. You're fun to be around, Jeremy. No, thank you. So are you. <laughs> we have fun. Oh my God, two people who suffered from FDS, frivolity deficiency syndrome, who are officially in recovery here. Look yeah, at we're, us. We're, yeah, we're actually having fun. I remember you told me one of your secrets was uh, taking your pleasures seriously. And I think about that a lot when I make a, a favorite cup of tea or something like that. I think of you, Jeremy, saying that to me. And I think I'm going to take this pleasure very seriously. I, uh, that came from Charles, the designer, Charles Eames. And 
he had this, it was like one of their rules that they definitely took their pleasures seriously. And I think that we don't do that enough. That sounds so frivolous, right? But the systematic, intentional experience of enjoyment is, I think, a really essential quality to cultivate in your life. How do you really enjoy something? Um, for me, it's eating. So unfortunately, my sumo wrestler great-grandfather's body is kind of manifesting in my own. But, um, but you know, how do you, how do you not, don't push those things away. You know, those are the things that make life worth living at some level. And that's where the, that's where the fun is, right? I'm like, yeah, anyway, we could go on about taking pleasure seriously. But, you know, it, it should be, I think, a calendared event on your, on your schedule. It's like, where is their pleasure in your, in your calendar? Because that's what keeps you vital, actually. I want to make sure we're addressing that person who's listening who says, okay, I have a lot of fear. It relates to my work life. You've pointed out how important the transformation of fear is, and you've told me to go ahead, get into my sensations, welcome them, stay with them. That's going to release a certain amount of vital energy. Do you have anything more for me? Because I'm still afraid. <laughs> yeah. I would say before you did any of that, it goes back to the taking pleasure seriously, which is to, as a kind of systematic practice, pay attention to what is beautiful in your world. What are, what are, what are the good things in your life? I mean, that, this sounds so, I mean, as the words coming out of my mouth, there's also a part of me that's like kind of retching, but the to look at who or what has supported you in your life and even just write them down, like from the fir your first grade teacher to there was a day where everything fell apart and your buddy came to you on the playground and said, you know, everything's going to be okay. Like where, where are those things? Be vigilantly conscious of when you have been helped, when you have been supported, what enlivens you, what, what do you look out the window and see as beautiful? Uh, what art animates you and, and to do that regularly, I do it every day. And th that's where I think I feel very enormously appreciative for Japanese culture, because beauty is so baked into everyday life at some level that, that by doing that, you start to shift the mind's automatic tendency towards survival and, and looking at negativity, right? Um, and it sounds so frivolous. And, you know, and then the Calvinists in us kind of like, you know, pleasure, beauty, all that stuff. Yeah, whatever, dude, right? But I think that by doing that, you know, you, one of the things I make my students do is, first of all, I make a distinction between gratitude and appreciation. I, I, to be honest, I kind of hate, I hate gratitude. <laughs> partially why partially because in an in a reciprocity based society to think of all the things that you've been grateful for that you've received creates a lot of guilt for people i found that with my east asian students you know they would i give them this exercise and they'd come back and they'd feel miserable and they'd say like if i looked at all the things i appreciate or that i've received the good things i've received i feel like e a i either don't deserve it or b now i got to pay somebody back 
So in a reciprocity-based society, gratitude can create misery. And, and I found that it's actually much more helpful to start with, a, with appreciation, which sounds like that's just semantic, semantic differences, Jeremy. And, but but it actually, it's a very different phenomena. Appreciation is about recognizing the value of things, or the value in things. And they may not have anything to do with you. It may not be something you have received you personally, but I can see the spider web over there or the way the sun is kind of coming through the trees right now if I look out the window and I can appreciate that. And so what I ask my students to do is make a list of 10 things they appreciate about their life every day for 21 days and they can't repeat anything with the assumption that at around day five, you're going to get through your kind of automatic list of things you appreciate and then you have to start to look and you have to and you have to look and look and look and see like what, what, what is valuable? What is beautiful? What are the things that, that um, move you? And by building in that habit, you create a counter habit to the mind's natural tendency to see the negative, the broken, the, the weak, the, all of that. And, and if you can do that, um, that is a, a good way, a good way to start. Um, and then, and then you can take that and use it as a, as a, as a meditation practice, like pick something good in your life and then contemplate it, hold it in your mind and then see what happens in your body. It's almost always pleasurable. And, and as you hold that state in your body, you can feel your neurochemistry change. You can feel your kind of somatic quality change. And if you do that over and over again, um, then things can really shift. I think I've found, and I've found it also both in myself and the people I work with. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Beautifully. And I have just one final thing I want to talk to you about, sure. Jeremy, which is I think when we look around, especially in business, people have this sense of accelerated uncertainty, change, accelerated sense of where, where are businesses going? What's going on? How are we going to be okay? And at the same time, someone like you is coming in and saying, I'm going to help you more and more be in the green zone yourself mm. and with your company. And I wonder if you can make this connection, how you see this time we're in, and if you will, the opportunity for people to bring their full conscious humanity to work. What is this moment, this opportunity for business people right now? Yeah. That's that's a deep question. Well, one is okay, so let's see. There's so many different ways you could approach this, right? One is absolutely people feel so we're coming off 3 years of this covid adventure which keeps continuing, keeps having sequels, right? Um I think we've all been thrown off at some level. Now enter AI in the last few months. And that adds a high, and then you've got climate change, and then you've got political instability and all of that sort of stuff. So there's a lot to feel anxious about. And so underscore more than ever, all the things that we talk about in the inner, inner MBA, that your capacity to manage yourself becomes more important than ever. And even if it is simply the other thing, which I hadn't talked about yet, but learning how to ground yourself, 
right? Or or what I what I call solidity practice. How do you in, in this swirling world where everything seems to be changing? How do you find a place of solidity that you can ground your nervous system in? And I, I think that's probably one of the easiest things, easiest practices to take up is just start to have a relationship with solidity. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, sometimes it means just taking your palms and putting them on the tabletop and feeling the sol solid quality of the tabletop. And that allows your hyperactive red zone nervous system to come back into the green. And I find that the people I work with find that extremely useful. Just put your hands on the tabletop, feel the tabletop, right? Or feel the feet under your floor or feel the support from the chair. Okay. So that creates a base of stability. Now, from there, where do we go? Um, it's clear we're at kind of uh, one of those moments in history where everything can change and, and that that's, uh, that for many people is, in, is, is uh, threatening. Why, why all of this nervous system stuff is so important is that it shifts you out of the fear of what's going to happen to me to, as I talked about earlier, look for the opportunities. What's the opportunity here? We're going to have to be able to do this over and over and over and over again because we need to reinvent an entire civilization. So, so at, at one point, there are things that seem like they are crumbling because they are crumbling, but that doesn't mean it's a, the final, it's not a finality. I think that's the other thing I learned from what I call the great kidney adventure. If I can digress just a minute, you know, after I had the surgery, I, um, you know, I was more alive than I'd ever been in my entire adult life. And at the nine month mark, I fell into a huge depression, a huge, you know, not interested in living anymore kind of depression. And it was strange, like what, what's happening to me? I've never been healthier and I'm now not interested in being alive. And that, and it was interesting to know that as I was leaving the hospital, the doctor pushed into my palm a, a antidepressant medication, which meant that they knew it was going to happen. It's that regular. So I knew there wasn't anything wrong with me, but then it started me down the path of exploring transitions. And I think this is going to speak to what you're asking about. That what I learned in that process is that when you undergo great changes, oftentimes your nervous system will react in a way to slow everything down. And we experience it as a depression. And what I think the intention is, is like by slowing you down and forcing you to, to basically become somewhat immobilized, is that it, it forces you to look at, well, what are the thoughts or beliefs or assumptions that I am holding in my life right now that no longer are appropriate. For me, it was the assumption I wouldn't live past 30. And now suddenly I had to think about a future. So, and that what we experience as a depression is a kind of opportunity to start to let go of what is not valid anymore. Well, there are a lot of things in our culture now that are not valid anymore that we took for granted or that we thought were were unchanging assumptions about how the world is. And, and so I think a lot of the chaos we experience is really something forcing us to say what is not valid. And so you, so I had to go through this process of kind of basically cleaning out the attic of 
let go of the beliefs or assumptions or behaviors that no longer fit. And at the same time, explore, okay, who am I going to be? Who do I want to be? What's important to me? And, you know, what does that next, in, you know, essentially incarnation look like? And I, nobody ever talks to you about that. Maybe Chip Conley is the only other person that talks about this. But, that, but that's what happens in life. And if you're used to achievement and making things happen, and then suddenly you are in this depression that you can't explain, you think the game is over. But what's actually happening is the game is changing. And nobody ever tells you that. So I think what I had to learn how to, what I learned how to do was to realize, oh, these transition processes are natural, natural inflection points that almost inevitably happen in life. Nobody ever tells you this. And, and that they are asked, they are, they're not asking, they're demanding that you let go of what is not working. Animals shed shells that no longer fit them, right? Humans, this is the human equivalent of that, except because nobody ever tells you that you think you've lost it. And what it really is, is you on the precipice of the next stage of your evolution, which I think is the larger I, th I think this is the larger story of what you and I care about and, and what the inner MBA I think is really all about is like, what's the next stage of human evolution. And as part of that, tying this back into the earlier conversation, it means you almost always have to come face to face with something with your own fear or with your own unhealed trauma. And which of course is terrifying and it seems totally overwhelming, but it is that, that, that as, as my friend Marcella says, is the small temporary price of discomfort you pay in order to get to the next stage of your greatness. And, and that's what people have to know. And I think that's where we are as an, in an, not just as individuals, but as an entire civilization. You know, as a carbon-based civilization, we need to transform and we need to have a transition. And that's not going to be pretty. And, and there's no choice but to go forward. And, and, and one of the ways we go forward is by, and by navigating that, navigating that transition, like, you don't, you also don't do it alone, right? Like I didn't navigate my transitions alone. I had a lot of help and from people like Marcella and, and from my meditation teachers and going on retreat and taking care of my, my inner self. Um, to, to kind of foster that, that next stage of my life. And, and I'll tell you, my life now is radically, radically different than my pre, my pre um, kidney transplant life. I mean, not just because of the physical health, but just like who I think I am. But, um, but I think that, that to me is the larger picture, larger and more important picture of, of human evolution. And, and it goes back to the transformation of fear. And that these transitions put you face to face with your fear so that you can overcome them and they can stop limiting you. How about that? <laughs> I've been speaking with Jeremy Hunter, a terrific collaborator on the journey of personal awakening and organizations awakening to their possibility. 
and how we can develop the inner capacities to do this. He's one of the core faculty members of the Inner MBA. He mentioned Chip Conley, who's one of the many CEOs who are participating in the Inner MBA, bringing their insights and stories. It's a learning community. The program runs once each year, begins in the middle of September. We'd love to have you join us. You can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Jeremy Hunter, I love talking with you. Thank you so very much. <laughs> Thank you, Tammy Simon. <laughs> Sounds true. Waking up the world. Thanks for being with us. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>